Hello, my name is Oliver Patel and welcome to the Exploring Inequalities podcast series. I'm a research assistant at UCL Grand Challenges and I'm joined today by Martin Mills, Professor of Education at UCL. Thanks for joining me, Martin. Uh, pleasure, Ollie. So today's episode is all about voice. Some people have a voice, some people have less of a voice and it really matters with regards to your stake in society. What do you think it means for someone to have a voice in society and to be heard? I think it's an important aspect of social justice. For me, I see there's kind of three core tenets of social justice. One is distribution, economic. Another is recognition, cultural justice. And the third is political justice, which is representation. It's the ability to be heard. Now, that is clearly affected by both economic and cultural injustices, but I think it is a right of its own, the right to have a voice to be listened to and to have that voice acted upon. And what does that it, mean to you? It means to me that somebody is able to articulate their concerns about injustice and to have them addressed. So we can recognise the other forms of injustice without having a voice and without being able to be listened to, then I think other injustices will continue to um, reproduce themselves. An example of how it might sit outside other kinds of justices is if you think of young people in a school and I would say all young people in most schools have very little voice in terms of say in school rules, school structures, disciplinary routines, curriculum, their voice is actually denied as young people. Now many of those young people would be privileged on other axes but as young people they are denied a voice. Now the more kind of experiences of oppression that you have the less voice you have generally in the broader society so for me all my work is underpinned by a commitment to social justice so that means ensuring that voice and the voice of people I would consider to be marginalized is prioritized in that research which means talking to them mm. listening to them and articulating viewpoints that come from those groups of people without being, um, and I would use the term tokenistic in the sense of just saying that's the truth, but you've still got to provide a critical lens over that and understand that voice can be shaped by your particular circumstances, by other powerful discourses. For example, it's not unexpected to hear people articulating discourses which justify their own oppression. So, for instance, meritocracy mm -hmm. is a dominant discourse mm -hmm. across broad sectors of the society, but particularly in education, which justifies people being put in different groups, which justifies people receiving different kinds of outcomes from schooling. But that notion of meritocracy actually can be complicit in people's oppressions. So I think when people articulate their voice, we still have to provide, as researchers, a critical lens to that. Mm -hmm. So just to pick up on something you said, one of the main arguments which we made in our report and mm. we put forward was that researchers in particular should strive to do research with groups and mm. with people and for them as opposed to on them because mm. often we have big studies, you know, big quantitative studies in, in education, for example, where mm. the findings relate sort of working class educational yeah. outcomes, yeah. but then there's often not been that engagement with the actual community. Yeah. So as an academic, how does one go about doing research with marginalized groups and, and for mm. them as opposed to just on them? It is a difficult position. It's something I talk about a lot with my PhD students who use the term with 
doing with research because it sounds, you know, politically important to do it in that way. But often it is, a, you know, my students want to go in, collect the data, come back, write about the people without going back and talking to them. And one of the approaches that I've used in my research is going back to people I've interviewed and saying, are we hearing you correctly? Mm. Is the way in which we're interpreting what you've said is that valid? And again, it means saying, this is how I understand it as a researcher. What do you think? And providing people opportunities to respond. I think there are ways in which you can do research with people in terms of producing things, having people work as identifying the questions they want answered and addressed. I think at times that, again, can slip into tokenism in terms of the researcher is the person often who's experienced at conducting research, has read widely and as understands the issues from an intellectual position. And so when they go into those environments, you can't deny the fact that they've got some expertise in, mm -hmm. in research. Mm -hmm. But I think what you have to do is be open to listening and being open to responding. And I guess... You know, I don't know the difference between listening and hearing, but it's about mm -hmm, actually mm -hmm. not just feeling like we've ticked it off. Okay. We're talking to some oppressed people, done it, you know. It's mm. about saying, is this meaningful to you? Then also, I think in, in research terms now, we are concerned about impact. So I think it's important that we actually think about how can our research make a difference? We have to write, publish, in, you know, our articles and books and so on, but we have to also make sure that there is a, an impact of some kind. So if you want to do research with certain groups, it's got to be more than just interviewing them once and then writing that up. It's got yes, to be a absolutely. sort of continuous yep. process. Yep. A slightly controversial question. Do you think that the academic community in your field, for example, are they, are they open to this? Are people truly willing to do this kind of work and invest the time and energy it takes into this kind of activity? I think people are willing. I think people have the political will to do that work and people write about it and talk about it. I think that at times it is difficult because conducting research is expensive. It is, you know, and the qualitative research that I'm engaged in is very time consuming. Can you talk a little bit about it and like an example of a, a project you've worked on where you've really tried to embody this principle of working with people? Yeah, so, so I've done work in a range of what would be called alternative provision sites for young people who have been excluded from school and have interviewed those young people about both the mainstream schools that they've been excluded from or you know expelled from and about the schools that they're currently in and so with those interviews we then have gone back to the schools and organized meetings of those young people and presented what we think are the findings of our research, saying these are the things that we are recommending schools need to do in order to improve the education of young people who are likely to be excluded from school. Are we hearing you correctly? You know, Are there other things we need to have taken into account? What have we missed? Now, obviously, it's difficult for young people who have been excluded from school, sometimes, you know, many of them from very marginalised backgrounds, to necessarily articulate to a researcher in a kind of open forum. So we've had groups of those young people looking at our findings, discussing them and then feeding back to us. Now, that to me is a kind of ideal scenario. And I hold my hands up and say, I've done other research which has had to be quick and fast for mm -hmm, departments, mm -hmm. which has gone in, asked voices and hasn't necessarily come yeah. back to them. So that's kind of the ideal. I mean, yeah. though, just to take this logic to a different domain, mm. the domain of governance or policy. Mm. So you spoke mm. about 
young people as a group don't have a voice mm. with regards to how their school is mm. run or how an education mm. system is run. And then more broadly, a lot of marginalized people don't have a voice or a say in how society is run more broadly. Mm. So mm. would it be possible to apply some of those ideas from how to do research with groups to how to make policy or design whole mm, systems mm. with these groups how could we make that leap yeah i don't have the blueprint for that but i think it's definitely it's something we have to do and if you look at the current rise in populism at the moment whether it's populism of the right or populism of the left it seems to have been a product of what we could say are neoliberal discourses that have prioritized the market where we're now seeing a reaction to the lack of voice that neoliberalism has denied many people and I think that out of that, there are the potentials for thinking about how, from someone who works with social justice, thinking about, well, what, what is a kind of progressive populism that we can actually now harness to use to address some of the inequalities that have come about through a range of practices which fall under the umbrella of neoliberalism. And so you think that the populist movements are in large part caused by quite legitimate grievances which people have about Ab the lack of voice and lack absolutely. of representation. Yeah, absolutely. So I do think and this is where I come back to the, the complicity of one's own oppression and, you know, what Bourdieu might call symbolic violence in the sense that people have attributed kind of what they feel as a lack of voice, a lack of feeling privileged and articulating that in a way that has not necessarily been in their own interest. So you know, and my position on Brexit, for instance, is that many of the people who voted for Brexit had legitimate concerns mm -hmm. about the state of their lives. I just don't think Brexit was the answer. And I think that people who have a, a social justice perspective need to consider how have those voices been denied? How can we ensure that we listen to those concerns in progressive ways? So I, I guess Brexit's quite an interesting case study because a lot of the people who voted for it are from very marginalised yes. and mm. deprived communities. And uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that many of these people haven't, don't usually vote and they voted mm. for Brexit. So is there an argument that reversing Brexit or having another referendum actually is denying a voice to those, a lot of these people who voted for something? I think... I'm I not saying it, that's what you think, but no, it's no, just no. an, an interesting I'll come back case, to, case to my study. research proce yeah. processes. So I would support a second referendum in the same way that I would conduct research to say, did we hear you correctly? Was mm -hmm. this really what you wanted? Mm -hmm. You know, is this really what you were arguing for? Mm -hmm. In the same way that I argued for researchers going back to, in my case, schools mm -hmm. and saying to young people, were we hearing you correctly? Is this what you wanted to mm -hmm. say? I think we have to do that now in terms of Brexit. That's interesting. <laughs> <Is And it? laughs> we spoke a bit about tokenism. So mm. you're saying re representation is the ideal we should strive towards. Yeah. But too often we have tokenism. So yep. what are these two concepts and how do they differ? For me, tokenism is kind of playing lip service. It might be saying we have a panel, we better have you know, representation from somebody from various marginalised ethnicities, an LGBT person, somebody from, you know, a woman, mm -hmm, and, you know, mm -hmm. and so on, without recognising that, A, those groups are not homogenous, there's a diversity of voices within them, recognising that often that puts people in difficult positions. So one of the projects that I'm involved with now is minority ethnic teachers in, mm -hmm. 
in England. And many of those teachers talk about how they're used in tokenistic ways to, you know, what does the black person think? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I was interviewing a black male teacher the other day who was talking about how he was always given the naughty kids, and especially the naughty black boys, and where he was sort of being pigeonholed into a mm-hmm. particular kind mm-hmm. of construction of a teacher. So we employ a diversity of teachers, but it's treating them in kind of tokenistic ways by Mm -hmm. saying, well, they can deal with all these problems. Mm -hmm. It's not actually listening to them in terms of what are the underlying causes of many black boys Mm -hmm. possibly being excluded from school and behavioural issues. So I think representation means actually listening, acting, looking at fundamental causes and not using it as a kind of marketing instrument to say aren't we great without changing some of the fundamental structures not challenging some of those discourses which produce the voicelessness of many marginalized groups and do you have any sort of more radical or (laughs) harder to achieve shall we say policies or actions which could be taken to seriously improve the representation of marginalized groups I suppose, yes. (laughs) You know, I would look at who gets to employ teachers. So if we keep going with the teacher example, Mm -hmm. at the moment what you find is that many teachers from marginalised ethnic backgrounds can only get jobs in schools where there's difficult problems, you know, difficult behavioural problems. I would take control of staffing schools away from schools. I would actually do that nationally or even locally, but schools can't make a decision as to who they employ and that you look at actually somebody actually looking for real representation of teachers across those schools. I think in terms of how schools might run, that you would actually look at far more democratic forms of operating. You know, if I want to go down the right radical end, I have a book on alternative education and in that is a school we visited in in Devon the unfortunate thing is it's a private school but it completely runs on decision making of the whole school community teachers students and so on so the, the students have a say in the employment of teachers they have a say in the curriculum they have a say on absolutely every single issue mm-hmm. their voices are heard and integrated into that school the problem is that the book we did was about saying what can the mainstream learn from the alternative sites and that was one of them along with those sites where young people had been expelled from school excluded from school but you actually once you start talking to excluded people, people who have chosen a different education because they feel uncomfortable with the authoritarian structures of many mainstream schools, you actually start to hear ways from the young people in terms of how the schools can be run. So probably my radical suggestion would Mm be actually listening, talking to students, giving them a voice in the running of their schools, allowing communities to have input into curriculum, into school organisation. At the same time, I think you have to be aware, and at the moment everybody's aware of what's happening in Birmingham around LGBT issues Mm -hmm, in the curriculum. mm -hmm. I think that as well as listening to community, there also has to be certain social justice principles that are givens, and that those things you don't necessarily listen to a community if it's not the voice of the community and if it undermines principles of social justice so there's a sort of harm principle there where absolutely yeah yeah professor martin mills thank you very much for talking to me today no thanks for talking to me thank you thank you so my next guest is famida rahman famida is a researcher at the resolution foundation 
Thanks for joining me today, Famida. So what does it mean to you for someone to have a voice in society, for their voice to be heard? What does that mean? I think there are loads of different ways we define voice. So I think we talk a lot about representation and having people at board level or having people in meetings or sort of putting people of screen that are people of colour or women or beefing up our numbers. And I think in a way that sort of tick list is seen as we've made it, we've like hit our diversity points. But I think voice goes so much deeper than that because what you're trying to do is not show the world that you've accepted and are willing to have brown faces sit next to you it's that you're actually willing to listen to those people and give them an adequate say so I think voice is really about having a meaningful say in how things are run and having your opinions heard and I think it's really really complex because sometimes you can have that say but you can feel censored and can self-censor yourself as well because there's an acceptability of what's allowed to be said sometimes and for fear of being shunned or of being taken less seriously people will limit what they say and that in itself is a form of censorship even if it's self-inflicted it's caused by external influences and I think that can undermine voice even if people are in theory listening to you so if we take the example of a business organization and they work to increase diversity or representation of specific groups in their organization but are you saying that that alone isn't sufficient there are sort of deeper things which they could do things which are actually once these people are already there what can an organization do to actually give these people a voice and have them be heard and included and have a meaningful voice in the way that you talk about? Are there sort of tangible measures which organizations can take? It's quite anecdotal, but I think in a lot of big organizations, you get this thing where like they'll have these great diversity initiatives and they'll recruit loads of diverse people, but then that diverse cohort of people will get systematically stuck at the bottom of an organisation. So when you're presenting your figures and your diversity statistics, you can show that you've got the diversity. But if that diversity is systematically stuck at the bottom, then they're not making change and they're not filtering through and it's having an effect on their futures, their earnings, their potential. If you're, say, a research organisation or a policy organisation and you've sort of ticked your boxes but actually moving up the organisation and the people that have influence over the projects that are run or the research that's done or the things that are put out, if those people aren't in those places, then actually, despite your having diversity, you haven't actually achieved the goals of diversity, so you haven't broadened your voice or broadened your perspectives. And do you think in the same way that there's plenty of evidence that job application processes, hiring processes are discriminatory, do you think that there are similarly discriminatory processes once people have been hired and are in these organisations? And these processes presumably are a bit more opaque in that they're not open to public scrutiny in the same way. Do you think there are specific institutions or processes which are damaging? It's hard to quantify because we don't necessarily have all the research on it, but in terms of when people are put forward for progression and who gets a role and who doesn't and how that's influenced by certain unconscious biases, I think that's a really big thing that needs a lot of further research. But 
my anecdotal experiences of people telling me their experiences will tell you that it's really, really hard for people who start out in organisations to be heard. I think a lot of people feel like they're often overlooked for opportunities. Just to pick up on those points, one of the things that we found in our research was the overrepresentation of black and minority ethnic groups in the gig economy and in self-employment. Do you think that these kind of experiences of being overlooked or not treated fairly in the workplace could be driving people into self-employment? In some ways, I think the gig economy thing is a slightly different issue because Mm -hmm. the perspective that I'm talking about from is like people who have found their way into quite middle class jobs Mm -hmm. and they're not going to be in a situation where they're sort of going to look for take on a job with Uber. Mm -hmm. But in some respect, if you cast your mind to like people who are low paid, I think, say if you're talking about taxi drivers, there is an argument to be made about whether they were getting the same jobs as their white counterparts. Mm. And I know people have told me that from their own personal struggles, in terms of older generations of my family and Mm. things like that, I know a lot of people who have been in those professions and they themselves have told me that when you work for like a traditional firm, if it's not run by someone of your own ethnicity, a lot of the time you are discriminated against in terms of the jobs that you get. People don't give you the big jobs and a lot of the time that's sometimes that's down to customer preferences like people will say they don't want an Asian driver or Mm -hmm. I was going to use a different word which is a slur you can sort Mm -hmm. of guess what it is Mm -hmm. especially after like media narratives of say Rotherham and stuff sort of perpetuating this thing that all Pakistani men are paedophiles or whatever or part of grooming gangs it's it has an effect on normal people's lives to sort of peddle that narrative Mm -hmm. and I think in that climate it probably is easier to sort of bypass the discrimination by choosing to work for an algorithm that doesn't necessarily discriminate in that way although there are in the tech space there is a lot of talk at the moment about whether algorithms recreate the biases of human beings but that's to be researched. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, both of the industries which we work in so me in a university and you're in a research think tank in the resolution foundation one of the main things we've argued in in our report is that we should change the nature of society by changing who designs it and academics and think tanks play a key role in both influencing how society is designed and a lot of those people end up working in, in government and the civil service so how would you assess the state of voice and representation in our sectors of research, academia and policy? Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying before about there are a lot of initiatives in place, especially now, like over the past few years, we've seen a big drive to sort of improve representation. And I think that's come from external pressure and movements and things like that. But I think there is still a big problem in terms of the weight that's given to the opinions of people who are structurally disadvantaged, so women, women of colour particularly, disabled people, I think. Even at the level of MPs, sometimes there's a dichotomy made between people who are shouty and people who are reasonable and rational, and it goes back to those historic notions of the sort of Renaissance man and the, like, uber-rational and the emotional. And I think that plays out in politics today and in policy today, where some people are in my understanding, quite unfairly written off as sort of shouty when the only difference between them and 
a white middle-class man, for instance, is just that. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the time MPs, particularly when they're people of colour and women of colour are held to much higher standards, held to their mistakes more. Like if you take Diane Abbott and the maths issue. Mahito on the train. Yeah. She was held to such a, there was so much scrutiny for this like very low alcoholic drink. Yeah. Other MPs have made similar mistakes and they haven't been held to those standards. They aren't still berated for it. So there was a piece of research done by friends of mine at Redbridge Democracy into the amount of abuse that certain MPs get and they found that the abuse that BME MPs, particularly BME women, get is so much higher than like any other MP and that speaks to the extent to which those people are taken seriously on a public platform when compared to people who aren't. And just one final question on that. The statistics for academia are quite shocking. I think it's something like 85 black professors in the UK and only um, 25 are female. So why do you think there is such a low representation of, of black people in the academy at the highest levels? It's... You can't say, like, I'll get shot down if I say that it's because of discrimination and racism. Like, people don't want to hear that. Mm -hmm. But actually, the hard truth of the matter is that it's true it's hard for those people to move up in those fields. Like, it's hard for those people to move up in any fields because you have to work so many times harder. To even get people to take you seriously is so much more of an effort. And I think even when you've made it, people don't necessarily treat you with the same respect. And so it's a constant battle, and that plays out in the numbers. Fumida Rahman, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you.